Scott had been foiled by a mysterious being known only as the Doctor. Travers had brought back a strange collection of objects in support of his story. They included the massive creature that now stood in the museum and a small silver sphere that he claimed had once controlled the creature and given it life. Travers had been unable to prove his claims. The sphere remained silent, the Yeti refused to stir and everyone assumed Travers, unbalanced by his sufferings in Tibet, was attempting an elaborate fraud. Although no one believed the story, it had created a considerable stir. As a result, Emil Julius, a wealthy and eccentric collector with his own private museum, had offered to buy the Yeti for a handsome sum. Dejected, discredited, almost penniless, Travers accepted the offer an action he was to regret for the rest of his life. Although he sold the Yeti itself, Travers kept the silver sphere which controlled it, together with a number of other Yeti relics. Determined to justify himself to the world, he had begun to examine the sphere with the aim of discovering its secrets. With incredible determination, he had embarked upon the study of the still-new science of electronics. In forty years, Travers had turned himself from a discredited anthropologist into a world-famous scientist. His discoveries and inventions had made him rich and respected. But all this time he never lost sight of his one central aim, to reanimate the control sphere and bring the Yeti back to life. Anne, now a scientist herself, had grown up with stories of her father's adventures in Tibet. The strange doctor and his two companions were like figures in a fairy tale to her. She knew Travers had made repeated attempts to buy back the Yeti, but Emil Julius was as obstinate as Travers himself. The more determined Travers became to get the Yeti back, the more determined was Julius to keep it, convinced he was the owner of something valuable and unique. Looking at the two angry old men, Anne saw their quarrel had lost none of its bitterness, though both were now into their seventies. Taking her father to one side, she said quietly, You know Mr. Julius won't sell the Yeti back. Why all this urgency? Travers lowered his voice. I've done it, Anne. At last I've reactivated the control sphere. It began signaling again. That's wonderful news, father, said Anne soothingly. It would be, except for one thing. The control spheres disappeared. He turned angrily back towards Julius. Don't you see we'll try to return to the Yeti, and if I'm not there when it does, oh, make him understand, Anne. Julius interrupted. Oh, I understand well enough. You try to scare me to get your Yeti back. Well, it's priceless. The only one in the world, and it is mine. Anne took her father's arm. We better go. Maybe you put the sphere away somewhere and forgot where. It's happened before. I tell you, I've looked. Then we'll go back and look again. You know I can always find things for you. Gently, she led him away. Julius escorted them to the front door, closed it behind them. He stood for a moment, shaking with rage. 
No one destroys Emil Julius's collection. No one. Still grumbling childishly to himself, he began to lock and bar the door. In the empty hall, the Yeti stood motionless, surrounded by devil masks, mummies, dinosaur bones, and all the other oddities of Julius's collection. Then a faint signal, a kind of electronic bleeping, disturbed the silence. It seemed to come from outside the window. Suddenly the glass shattered, broken by the impact of a silver sphere. It was as if the sphere had been hurled through the window from the street outside. But the silver missile did not drop to the ground. It hovered in midair. Then it floated slowly towards the Yeti and disappeared into the still open hollow in the creature's chest. Immediately, 